The reading today is from Acts 2, verses 37 to 47. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for all who are far off. He warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and met together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth and life. And therefore we pray that as we listen, we will hear what you want to say to us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most famous studies ever conducted on relationships was called the Almeida County Study. It was undertaken by a man called Lester Breslov from Harvard, and he took nine years tracking the lives of 7,000 people during that period. It's a study that has formed the foundation of healthy living around the world. If you've ever been to the doctors and they've uh, done a BMI index on you, that came directly from that study. And uh, what's interesting for us this morning is that Breslau found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die earlier than the most relationally connected people. And people who had bad health habits like smoking or poor eating or obesity or alcohol use, but had strong relational connections, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. In other words, the weird truth is that it's far better to eat cream teas with good friends (laughs) than to eat broccoli alone. Now, studies like this confirm at a biological level what Scripture told us a long time ago. We were created for community. We were made for relational connectedness. We were designed by God to love and be loved, to know and be known, to serve 
and be served. And to miss out on that, whatever else we achieve and accomplish in life, however many toys we accumulate, we are missing out on one of the major reasons for living. And that's how the early church were functioning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, of course, our world is very different from theirs, but I believe the scripture always has an underlying truth for each generation. And we have to see what that looks like for our generation. We have to see what it looks like for our church. But there are truths to aim at here. We can tell that they cared about one another, they prayed for one another, there was community. And here in this parish, we are on the same trajectory of building a community where Jesus is at the centre. Now, it's true that many have a distorted view or understanding of what church is all about. So let me run through a few things that church is not. It's not a petrol station where we fill up our spiritual tank when we're running low. It's not a cinema or a theatre, an hour of escape where we come out smiling and feeling better than when we went in. It's not a surgery where we can get a prescription that would deal with our pain. These elements, of course, do exist as part of the church, but they're not in themselves biblical descriptions of what church is all about. For one thing, they're all about us. Fill me up. Entertain me. Take away my pain. That may be the pervasive mindset of our society, but it certainly isn't what the church is about. So let's make some biblical observations about a biblical definition of what the church is. The word church in the New Testament never refers to a building or a place. It always refers to the people. The Greek, ecclesia, means the gathered people. Now that's either the total number of believers who have ever lived, and that's a great thought, isn't it, when we're worshipping together. We're worshipping with believers in glory as well as here on earth. Or it's a local group of believers in a particular village or town or city or house. Acts 11 refers to the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians refers to the church that is in Corinth and so on. Paul's letter to the Philemon is also addressed to the church that meets in your house. And today, as we remember Mothering Sunday, is another expression of church. When I was at Guildford Cathedral, we used to pray for churches around uh, this diocese because the cathedral is the mother church. And when we gather together, it's good to recognize that we are part of a community in this diocese of believers. It seems to me that there are two ways to think about the local church. One seeks to find the minimum expression of what makes a group of people into a church. The other way seeks to find the maximum expression and definition that the local church could be and can become under the power and the grace of God. And both of those perspectives are worth looking at. The minimum, because if we don't know what the minimum is, 
we might find ourselves joining a church which in fact is not a church as the Bible defines it. The minimum expression and definition of what a church is is that the truth of Jesus as Saviour and Lord is publicly proclaimed and believed. The practices of baptism and Holy Communion are followed and there is a regular focus on prayer and worship and the teaching of God's word. Those are the things that the early church devoted themselves to. Those are the minimum. But surely we don't stop there. Isn't there something as church that we are becoming under the grace of God, the power of God, the direction of the Holy Spirit? What should we be doing with all our heart so that the world will see the glorious wisdom of God and the power of God displayed in our community. And the answer I want to give to that question is one that the New Testament uses the most often. Good deeds. Doing good things for other people. Our role is to live so that people can see that God is real. What does that look like? Jesus said, let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus, the good deeds of his disciples are a window through which people come to see and love the glory of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that the church is God's handiwork created in Christ for good deeds. God made us to do good deeds. And when he was training Titus, Paul said this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. He could not have put it any clearer. Jesus Christ died to make us zealous for good deeds. And the corollary of that, of course, is that churches will die if people cannot find evidence that God is real there. For when a church forgets that it exists for others, when a church doesn't remember that they are to show that God is alive and well in our community, it becomes ingrown. It becomes self-satisfied. And it can go on year after year like a social club with a kind of religious veneer. Now, I don't think for one minute that this parish is in that category. We do have a heart for good deeds that bring glory to God. And our heart must be to press on in the same direction. So let's get a clearer picture of what the New Testament means by good deeds. In Acts 9, Luke tells us that there was a disciple named Tabitha, or also Dorcas. She was full of good deeds, it says, and acts of mercy. And Dorcas became sick and she died. And when Peter came to see her, we're told that all the widows stood beside Peter weeping and showing coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. And it seems that Dorcas was part of a group of widows who spent their time distributing them. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul describes a support system within the church in Ephesus that had a group of such widows. And in order to be part of this group, 
They must be well attested for their good deeds as those who have brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints. How are we doing? <laughs> Relieved the afflicted and devoted themselves to doing good in every way. Notice the word devoted there. We'll come back to that. So good deeds are acts by which people's needs are met, especially the pressing needs of clothing and aid in distress. And that again, the focus of Titus, where it says, let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds in order to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So are these good deeds done because the apostles told the people to do it? Did Jesus tell people to go around doing good deeds? The answer is a resounding no. Jesus said to the apostles that they should start where they are and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the longed-for Messiah and after his cruel death he rose again. He is alive now and continues the work of setting people free from their habitual wrongdoing, the guilt that comes from it and the fear of eternal punishment as a result of it. And in sharing that good news, God added to their number. And as a result of that, each person began to change their outlook. They changed their perspective on life. It was different. They thought of others more than themselves. They realized that there was a calling on their lives to copy, to imitate the work that Jesus did, reaching out to the fatherless and the widow, giving to those who had little or nothing. They weren't to do it in their own strength either. Jesus would be with them and the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them. So they needed to pray and they needed to remember that what he said and did, especially the last meal that they had with them, with him, that we will celebrate in a moment, they needed to encourage one another through that because the going was going to be tough. They would meet with resistance. They needed to study the scriptures that showed how God had planned Jesus' coming all along and how he fulfilled the ancient prophecies and reading those in a new light through the lens of Jesus' ministry. They automatically found themselves to be a people who wanted to reach out to others as he did and minister to their needs. So it's helpful to notice the structure of this passage. It begins in verse 41 and ends in verse 47 by the Lord adding people to the church. And in between those two statements, it tells us exactly what they did in order that those numbers were being added to them. A principal word here is that the believers were devoted. And the Greek word devoted there means seriously and earnestly persisting in going on with it, despite the difficulties, despite the troubles. And four things are mentioned, as you know, and I'm going to concentrate just on one of them. The apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, we did a study on prayer recently, so we're not going to look at that. But the thing I want to look at in uh, much more detail is the word fellowship. We have a lot of images that come to our mind, I think, when we think of fellowship. Perhaps we think of simple togetherness, and that clearly is part of what it is. 
But Luke seems to focus on another far more radical meaning of word fellowship. He uses a word koinonia and it's all about having things in common, sharing things with one another. Interestingly, in secular Greek, koinonia is the word that is used for Siamese twins. Two bodies sharing the same bloodstream. And believers share the same benefits of Jesus' shed blood. When we take communion in a moment, we will be sharing that same symbolic blood. It's the height of fellowship together. In addition, fellowship is having possessions in common. Not like communism, where we say, what I have is yours, but far more profoundly, we acknowledge that what we have is not ours, but God's. He gave it to us, and it is for him to direct whether we should give it away again, or whether we should sell it and give the money to the poor. Nothing that we own belongs to us as believers. It's given by God and belongs to God. We are stewards of it. So we find that they, in those days, sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as had need. So in closing, let me ask, what's the driving force that made those believers act like this? Full of gladness, full of generosity, praise and prayer, day after day. I think the key is found in verse 43. It says their fear came upon every soul. A joyful, trembling sense of awe. A sense that you don't trifle with God. This is a serious business. The absence of that fear has a direct, of the way, a direct uh, effect on the way that we view our possessions. It has a direct effect on the way that we might ignore the needy. Or we can trivialise fellowship and the way we play more than we pray. The rest of verse 43 says this, And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. This is what caused the whole community to stand in awe of what God was doing. And it motivated them to be devoted to good deeds and spiritual discipleship. And as a result, God did great things among them. And people were added to their number day by day. Let that be so here. Amen.